Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, I want to say uh, Happy Pentecost Sunday. This is the seventh Sunday after Easter, and it's the day that commemorates the gift of the Holy Spirit to Christ's church. Uh, and of course, it's the, uh, the blessing of the Holy Spirit to us as believers that makes possible the kind of life that we're going to be talking about today from the book of uh, Galatians. Have you ever been faced with a momentous choice, a choice so important that it could change the course of your life? You know, who to marry is one of those kind of momentous choices, right? It can make a huge difference whether you marry a cop or a professor of philosophy, for instance. There's a big difference between marrying a pharmacist or a farmer. Your life will be very different. Big difference if you marry a decisive ER nurse or a whimsical starving artist. It's going to make a big difference if you marry... Uh, a devoted follower of Jesus as over against a hardcore atheist. Whom you marry is a momentous choice. Where to live can be one of those choices, right? It can change the course of your life depending upon where you choose to live. I mean, if property taxes are killing you, you probably are thinking about moving away from New Jersey. Unless, of course, you don't like pumping your own gas, in which case you just may choose to stay at least until the legislature, as is rumored, passes a law that lets us start pop, pumping our own gas finally, in which case there'll be nothing keeping you here, and then you'll probably move. If you uh, want colder weather, you might want to think about moving to Minnesota, where we used to live, where we used to say there were only two seasons. There was six months of winter and six months of mosquitoes. Or if you never want to see snow again, don't like driving in snow, you might want to think of moving farther south, but then you've got to take into consideration the all-important factor, and that is where do the grandkids live and how often do you want to see them? Uh, momentous choices that we make in life that can change the course of our lives depending upon what we choose. Well, as we end the study of Galatians today, the Apostle Paul lays before us a truly momentous choice, the most momentous choice of our Christian lives. It's, in fact, a choice of such importance that Paul picks up the pen himself to encourage us and challenge his readers with this choice. It was typical of Paul to use a secretary, an amanuensis, a scribe, a professional, to dictate his letters. And so Paul would, would talk and the amanuensis would write down what Paul was saying, but then Frequently, Paul would add his own signature at the end of letters where he would pick up the pen and write a short greeting in his own hand as a way of ensuring to his readers that it was really Paul who was doing the writing. 
The interesting thing here in Galatians is that he picks up the pen with eight verses to go, which is really pretty unusual for Paul. His greetings are usually pretty short. And uh, he writes this in verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, why large letters? Well, some say that Paul was writing in large letters because his eyesight was going bad and he had to write in large letters to see his own handwriting. That's possible because there are places in Paul's letters where he seems to be talking about his eyesight failing. It's more likely, however, that he's writing in large letters because this was how you emphasized things in ancient writing. Uh, kind of like uh, how some of us old people leave the cap lock on when we text and we don't realize what we're doing. Uh, and so you send a message to your kids all in caps and they, they send you a message back, why are you shouting at me? Because that's text etiquette, right? You put something all in capital letters, it's like shouting. Well, uh, Paul is writing in large letters and he is on purpose shouting at us at the end of this letter for emphasis. He wants to emphasize his point to us. Uh, obviously, in those days, you didn't have italics or bold face type or underlining, so you, you wrote in large letters. Paul says, look at what large letters I, I'm writing to you with my own hand. And what Paul is shouting at the end of his letter is, choose wisely. Choose wisely. You can rely on yourself or you can depend on Christ. You can boast in the flesh or you can boast in the cross. I'm telling you, choose the way of the cross. Now, this whole passage revolves around a contrast that Paul makes pretty much in the middle of the passage in verses 13 and 14. It's a choice between two ways of trying to live the Christian life. And one way is advocated by the Judaizers who've been encouraging the Gentile believers of Galatia that they should try to perfect their salvation by keeping the law. And the other way is what Paul has been advocating in pointing them to Jesus alone and a life lived in the power of his spirit. One boasts in the flesh, which we have defined as trying to live out of my own resources independently of God. You know, I did it my way. I've, I've tried real hard to live the Christian life, and look what I've done. Uh, the other way, Paul says, doesn't boast in the flesh, but boasts only in Christ, his death and resurrection that delivers me from the power and the penalty of sin and his spirit who empowers us to live a whole new way that exceeds the righteousness of the law. You see that contrast in verses four, 13 and 14 where he talks about these people who desire you to, to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now the word flesh there certainly has reference to the flesh that is cut away in the act of circumcision, but more broadly it speaks of the way of the, the flesh, the life that's lived in the, the power of the flesh, you know, the things that I do to earn favor with God. So there's the way of the flesh, boasting in the, in the flesh in verse 13, but far be it from me, he goes on to say, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So two ways of living, two ways of boasting or glorying, glorying in the flesh, boasting in the flesh, boasting in the cross. And, and it's this contrast that we're going to examine this morning to see why Paul is so insistent that we choose the way of the cross. So let's look at the first part of this contrast, the way of the flesh, the, the self-life that boasts in the flesh. That's right there in verse 13. Uh, they, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. This is the approach 
to the Christian life that basically says, yeah, trust Jesus for salvation. That's, that's good. But now that you've trusted Jesus for salvation, Christian, the rest is up to you. You've got to try real hard to be a, a good Christian, to please God. Once you become a Christian, if you really want to please God, now you've got to keep these rules, or you've got to follow this law, or you've got to perform these rituals. And when you keep all the rules, or when you uh, follow the law, or you perform these rituals to our satisfaction, then we'll pat you on the back and you can feel good about yourself. And by the way, we'll feel good about it too because we take pride in how many people we convince to be circumcised and to keep kosher and to observe holy days and to keep all the other 613 commands of the Old Testament. And Paul wants us to understand what is the real agenda of those who advocate the self-life that boasts in the flesh. They'll tell you that their, their goal is to please God, but in reality, this way of living craves approval. They seek approval of the world. Look at verse 12 where Paul says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to do these things. That's what they're after. They want to make a good showing of themselves. They, they want to impress you with how good their flesh looks. These are the guys that Jesus warned about in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, who would stand on street corners praying lengthy prayers in order to be seen by men. Or they would blow trumpets as they would give their offerings at the temple so that people would, would be impressed with how generous they were. It's these people, people of this same ilk, who, who want others to be impressed with not only how strictly they observe the law, but how they, they persuade Gentiles even to get circumcised and to start obeying the law of Moses. And Jesus says of such people, look, if you do it to impress others, well, then you got your reward in full. You did it to impress people. People are impressed. That's all the reward you get. Don't expect anything more from me. The point is that the self-life can put on a really, really good show in an attempt to win the approval of others. The show they put on can look really, really good, but it's still just flesh. A life lived independently of God by one's own wits and, and resources Reminds me of a story of a guy I read about, a Lithuanian man who in 2014 had a beat up old Mercedes CLK and he wanted to transform it into something new and exciting. So he refurbished his old car using expandable foam. You know the kind of foam that builders will use as insulation or maybe you, know, you get it in the squirt can and you, and you spray it in the foundation where a pipe goes through the wall to seal out the moisture and to keep critters out. Uh, well, he covered his car in this expandable foam and then he went to work meticulously sculpting until he had uh, the, the automobile design that he was looking for. And he did the same thing with the interior. He covered the entire dashboard with all this foam and, and, and redesigned the whole thing in the interior. And then he put some flashy new rims on the car and gave it a new paint job. And before you know it, here was this ruby red muscle car that if you didn't know the car's backstory, you'd assume there's a prototype of a new automobile line. It looked great. There's only one problem with it, and that it was that under all that paint and foam, there was still just a rusty old junker. That's what the self-life gets you. A life lived in the flesh that might even look really, really good, but 
still needs a transformation from the inside out. Those who live according to the flesh are less concerned about being transformed by God and are more concerned with winning the approval of others. They seek the world's approval. They want to make a good showing in the flesh, as Paul says in verse 12. One way they can make a good impression is by trying real hard to keep the law themselves, and then they turn around, and next they demand conformity. That's another characteristic of the, the, the self-life that boasts in the flesh. They crave approval, and they demand conformity. They expect you to keep the law. They keep score, you see, because one of the ways they feel good about themselves is by pointing out to others where they don't quite measure up. And one way they show off their fleshly righteousness is by being a good influence on others, to encourage others to, to strive in their own strength to live up to the demands of the law. This is the legalism that we've been talking about throughout this series. The idea that if you try hard enough, you can impress God with your righteousness and somehow earn his favor, perfect your righteousness in his sight. Legalists think that they can gain even more favor with God by turning other people into legalists. In other words, they think they can chalk up brownie points with God if they can get others to obey the law as strictly as they do. That's what he says in verse 12, the middle part, where it says it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, so they're all about approval, who would force you to be circumcised. There's the, the demand for conformity. People who live by the flesh like to tell others what to do. Theirs is a performance-based religion. One's favor with God depends upon what one does and how well one does it. And so they have no problem forcing Gentiles who've trusted Jesus to be circumcised. They say, yeah, trust Jesus, that's good, that's a good start. But now you've got to show you're really serious about pleasing God by getting circumcised and keeping the rest of the law of Moses. Not that any of them kept the law of Moses all that well, but they want you to do so. They want you to be as strict as they are. Look what Paul says in verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. It's a point of pride. Not only that they're circumcised, but that they influence others to be circumcised. And the more they persuade to do so, the more favor with God they imagine that they have earned. They want others to think well of them. They want others to be impressed with how much influence they wield. And yet here's the dirty little secret of those who live according to the flesh. And that is when the going gets tough, they can't be counted on to see things through. See, they, they do whatever they have to do to avoid pain because after all, it's about the flesh, right? And when the flesh starts to hurt, well, they're pain avoidant. They, they don't want to hurt. The self-life that boasts in the flesh craves approval, demands authority, but then it avoids suffering. It avoids suffering. It avoids pain. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, there's the desire for approval, who would force you to be circumcised, there's the demand for conformity, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, what's that about? Well, it's very likely that the problem here that the Judaizers faced, you know, remember they were from back in Jerusalem, Judea, that part of the world, and when they came to Christ, well, they were law-keeping Jews when, when they trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. 
They had been circumcised. They offered the prescribed sacrifices. They kept kosher. They observed the Sabbath. They kept the high holy days. They did all of that. And they didn't see a need to change any of that when they put their faith in Jesus. After all, Jesus himself was a Jew and Jesus lived that way. But then some of their friends at synagogue who hadn't accepted Jesus as Messiah get wind of the fact that Gentiles are now joining this Jesus sect and they hear about this guy Paul who's going around telling Gentiles that you don't need to be circumcised to be in right relationship with God. You don't need to eat kosher. You don't need to keep the Sabbath. You don't need to, to obey the law of Moses. And, and they say these, these non-believing uh, Jews in the synagogue say to the Christ followers in their synagogue, are you okay with all this? Really? I mean, you agree with this heretic Paul, that all you need is Jesus and you don't need the law? Where is all this headed? Are you in agreement with this? I mean, maybe we shouldn't welcome you into our synagogue anymore. Maybe we shouldn't talk with you or do business with you anymore. Maybe we shouldn't be so happy you live in our neighborhood anymore. And, and maybe we shouldn't let your kids play with our kids anymore. And maybe it was to avoid such disapproval call it persecution, if you will, that these Jewish believers in Jesus said to their friends in the synagogue, no, 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 it's not like that. You see, uh, we, we believe that Jesus is Messiah, but we don't go along with all that other stuff. And to prove it, we'll send some of our most persuasive people to go to the Gentiles and persuade them that they should be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And so the Judaizers most likely got their start, not because they had some deep theological uh, convictions and disagreements with Paul, but rather they did it out of a desire to avoid the pain of persecution. You see, when you live according to the flesh, you might wear the cross like a beautiful piece of jewelry to be admired. But as soon as it starts to cause you pain, you put it in the drawer so, so as to not cause you so much trouble. Those who live according to the flesh like it when people think well of them, like to get other people to act like them, but they are pain averse. Don't expect them to suffer persecution for the sake of the cross. That's where they draw the line. They claim to be followers of Jesus right up to that, that point where they begin to experience persecution and to avoid the pain, they say to their friends, no, no, look, we're, we're just like you, really. We're, we're just good, law-abiding Jews. And no, we don't agree with Paul. And we think those Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus as Messiah should be circumcised and should be made to follow the law of Moses. You know what? Paul's description of the self-life that boasts in the flesh invites us to examine ourselves. To, to make sure that's not the version of the Christian life we've chosen. And so we have to ask, is my Christian life mostly about keeping up appearances? Warning, wanting others to think well of me? Do I live my life by a checklist of expectations of how a good Christian behaves and then judge others by how well they keep the rules? Do I live my Christian life in such a way as to avoid suffering for my identification with Christ? You know, we say to our friends, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not one of those fanatics. You know, I'm pretty normal, you know, a lot like you. The self-life boasts in the flesh 
It says, see what a fine Christian I've made of myself? I did it my way. It it craves approval, it demands conformity, but it avoids suffering. It looks great, but underneath all that foam and paint is still an old junker in desperate need of transformation. And Paul is saying, is that really how you want to live? Is that how you want to try to live your Christian life? The way of uh, the self-life that, that boasts in the flesh? Paul is urging us rather to choose the Christ life that boasts in the cross. The Christ life that boasts in the cross. He says in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's going to be in my ability, not in my ability to live a righteous life by my own wits and will, There's only one thing you'll ever find me boasting about, and that's how Jesus gave his life on the cross and paid the ransom of my sin and how he rose from the dead in glory to break sin's grip on me. It's not about anything that I have done that I can boast in. It's all about Jesus and what he has done to deliver me from the penalty and the power of sin. And that's what I'm depending upon to live my Christian life. Not my ability, but the fact that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The old me is dead. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live not by the flesh striving to make a a good impression, dressing up the old junker with a bunch of foam and paint. I choose rather to depend on Christ's spirit to transform me from the inside out, producing his love, his joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. I will boast not that I'm such a great Christian, but that Jesus is a great savior. As we often say, Jesus gave his life for us so that he might give his life to us in order that he might live his life through us. That's the life I choose to live. A life of surrender, and dependence upon Jesus. And that's what makes all the difference. See, whereas the self-life boasts in the flesh and craves the world's approval, Paul says the Christ life boasts in the cross and it dies to the world. It doesn't crave approval, but it dies to the world. Look at the end of verse 14 where he says, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, if I truly glory in the cross of Christ, I won't live for this world's approval. The world didn't have much good to say about Jesus when he came the first time and I've been crucified with him. The world won't have much good to say about me as a follower of Christ, but that's okay because in Christ I've been accepted as a much-loved child of the Heavenly Father and his opinion is really the only one that counts. And in Christ, I'm set free from the burden of, of living for the world's approval because I know my worth comes not from who the world says I am, but from who God says I am in Christ. The self-life boasts in the flesh and craves the world's approval. The Christ life boasts in the cross and dies to the world. Here's another contrast. Remember the self-life demands conformity to the law? That's not how the Christ life works. The Christ life is all about a new creation. 
Not about dead conformity or conformity to, to a, a dead law that can't transform me from the outside. It's rather about being created anew from within. If you're depending on, he says in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. That stuff doesn't really matter. What does count? A new creation, he says. If you're depending on circumcision to be the game changer or any other law or religion or ritual, then you're going to be sadly disappointed. Because no matter what the law that you're trying to live by, what the religion tells you you have to do, you're not going to measure up. None of us can, can do it perfectly. And so we all end up frustrated and feeling shame and guilt because we're just not very good at this. But the law, you see, is powerless to change us by making demands and expecting us to conform. But that's not how the Christ life is to be lived. In Christ, we are created anew. Remember what Paul says elsewhere? If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The old me has died with Christ, the new me has Jesus living within The life that I live isn't lived by my power anymore. It's lived in his power, by his spirit. And anyone who lives by this rule, rather than attempting to be righteous in the flesh, will not experience frustration and shame, but rather the peace and mercy of God, whether circumcised or not, whether Gentile or Jew. He says in verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I read recently of a guy named George Wright who started a life of crime back in 1962 when he and a friend robbed a gas station up in, in uh, Brick. These two guys broke into the gas station of, of a guy named uh, Walter Patterson they demanded that he give up all his cash, and when he was not willing to give up his cash, they beat him, and they, they took the cash right out of his pocket. $70 in crumpled bills was all they got for their, their effort. They left him laying there on the ground all beaten up. And then as they were leaving, uh, George Wright's friend shot the man and killed him. So they were wanted for murder. Now, just to show you how callous George Wright was about what had happened that night, uh, after the, the murder, they went out and ate a couple of cheeseburgers and played some shuffleboard. But they were apprehended and brought to justice and sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison down in Leesburg in South Jersey. But that was uh, too long for this angry young man to sit in jail, and so he conspired with a few of his fellow inmates to break out, and they, they figured out a way to hotwire the warden's car, and off they went. Uh, George Wright stayed under the radar until 1972 when having become mixed up with some Black Panthers, he and four others hijacked a plane heading from Detroit to Miami, eventually ending up in Algeria where uh, I I think later four four of the five uh, hijackers were captured, but George Wright began a fugitive odyssey there that led him to Germany and then to France and Guinea-Bissau and finally to Portugal. And in Portugal, he met a woman whom he married. He changed his name to Jorge. And somewhere along the line, became a follower of Jesus. 
His life was marvelously transformed. He was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean by Grace Church there in Portugal. And his life changed dramatically. He became a father to two children, raised, raised a healthy, happy family, turned from his life of crime to working with his hands to provide for his, his family, cleaned graffiti in Lisbon, helped to renovate an outreach center for HIV-positive children, served dinners at a homeless uh, facility, homeless for, uh, a facility for homeless people. He planted public flower gardens, raised his kids, became a senior citizen. And in the 40 years of his hiding, he never again did anything to add to his crimes, not even a parking violation. But on September 6, 2011, the law finally caught up with George Wright when six Portuguese policemen arrested him acting on an Interpol warrant issued by the United States. And when they arrested him, they found George Wright, but they arrested Jose Luis Jorge dos Santos, a Portuguese citizen. Well, the United States applied for extradition, and then the whole thing went to the Portuguese courts, which eventually denied extradition on the, on the grounds that, that they would not release him because he was a Portuguese citizen with a good record, and the, uh, the actual court hearing debated among the judges, this was, this was their, their main consideration. Is it possible uh, that they arrested the right man, but not the same man? Had he changed sufficiently that he was in fact no longer George Wright? Can a person actually change so much that he's no longer the same person? The gospel would say, yes. In Christ, we are new creations. What we were no longer has to define us. We must depend upon Jesus to live his life through us, even as we once depended upon Jesus to give his life for us. The question is, what life will you choose to live as a Christian? The self-life that boasts in the flesh and craves approval, demanding conformity, but avoiding pain? Or the Christ life that boasts in the cross, dies to the world, is created new, and is willing to bear scars? That's the last contrast that Paul makes in this passage between these two lifestyles. The self-life avoids persecution, but the Christ life is willing to bear scars. See, when you've experienced genuine new life in Christ and have died to the world, then no amount of persecution is going to dissuade your loyalty to follow Jesus. Paul is a prime example of that. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear my, in my body the marks of Jesus. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, look, I've suffered plenty for the sake of Jesus. I'm willing to suffer scars for Jesus. My body bears scars because of what I've suffered for Jesus. The Galatians themselves knew that. They saw it right there in one of their own cities in Lystra, how Paul was, was uh, stoned by a mob and left for dead. He was willing to suffer for Jesus, unlike his opponents who did whatever they had to do to avoid suffering. It's just that Paul is basically saying, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. Don't make me suffer for stupid stuff. Like you, you falling for this, this false teaching 
Don't make me suffer unnecessarily. That's a pain that Paul hoped to be spared. I like what one pastor says. He writes, at the very heart of the Christian gospel is a cross, the symbol of suffering and sacrifice, of hurt and pain and humiliation and rejection. I want no part of the Christian message which does not call me to involvement, requires of me no sacrifice, takes of me no comfort, requires of me less than the best I have to give. The duty of a Christian is to be faithful, not popular or successful. And so you have a contrast of these two lifestyles. And Paul virtually shouts to us in these last eight verses of his letter, choose the way of the cross. And confident that they will make the right choice, he concludes his letter with this blessing in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You know, the other path won't get you there. The self-life that boasts in the flesh and craves approval and demands conformity but avoids suffering. Paul said of that way of life back in chapter 5 that those who choose to walk that way have fallen from grace. They have severed themselves from Christ. Let Christ be our life. May we always glory in the cross dying to the world, living as new creations, willing to bear his scars. May his peace and mercy be upon us. And may his grace be with our spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the forceful call of the gospel in these pages of laying out for us uh, a way of attempting to live the Christian life that is doomed to frustration and then showing us how by the power of your spirit we can live the life of the cross, the way of Christ. Lord, I pray that, that we would be people who leave this place with the with a clear devotion to Jesus, depending on him not only for salvation, but depending upon him for the life that we live day by day, drawing our strength from him, that we may be branches abiding in the vine, drawing our life from him, bearing his fruit, not trying to do it on our own. Lord, show us the futility of trying to live the new life, the old way. Show us the futility of, of, of trying to live our life in Christ in the power of the flesh and help us choose rather to live by the power of your spirit for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.